Welcome to the Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to. Here you'll find clinicians and researchers discussing cutting-edge research from the embodied relational sciences, explaining why and how people work together to find healing. Hey, welcome to another week of Evidence-Based Therapist, where we read so you don't have to, but a little parenthetical, parenthetical. we would love it if you did, did. and we want you to, and colon, I don't want to say you should, but definite big invite, huge invite, like a, like balloons coming to your home, someone's on the front step, not with a check, but with like this big, like you could read this, you could read this and like, it's a megaphone is around, but it's not turned on. Yeah. It's like there yeah we're not yelling at you <laughs> no we it's a, quiet me- it's a quiet megaphone yeah it's, but we are very excited and it doesn't do that terrible like sh- terrible noise but yeah yeah no it's a it's a pleasant megaphone that says we would love for you to also read <laughs> uh, yes well welcome i hope that Either that way. invite hits and <laughs> if it doesn't clear if it doesn't that's okay because we are reading um, so you don't and, have to. And originally we were doing it so you don't have to. Yeah. Um, so thanks for joining us for another week. Here we are. Um, we are continuing our second season, which has been really oriented towards the title of the podcast, which yeah. is what makes an evidence-based therapist? What is evidence-based therapy? Mm-hmm. What are all the complexities and nuances and difficulties, advantages to what we come to call evidence-based therapists. Yeah. Um, And we've been on kind of an interesting journey. I think the first season was like a, let's just dump some amazing articles that are in line with- Seminal works. Yeah, Yeah. some seminal works that are in line with our kind of paradigm of how people come to integrate, heal, feel connected, and also where disintegration goes. Us showing sort of our cards. Yeah. As transparent researchers, like here's when we talk about evidence-based psychotherapy, this is where we're coming from. Yeah. Um, so as we engage in now the conversation of the actual means of determining evidence-based psychotherapy, you know where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> if it yes. doesn't come across clearly in each episode. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we started with the natural occurring, uh, naturally occurring phenomenon, memory mm-hmm. reconsolidation. Mm-hmm. We've been talking about advantages, disadvantages of EBTs. We've talked about... 15 treatments, evidence-based treatments for depression. And now we're on to an article by Henrik Berg in 2019. And the title of the article is Evidence-Based Practice in Psychology Fails to be Tripartite, a Conceptual Critique of the Scientocentrism of Evidence-Based Practice in Psychology. Mm -hmm. That's kind of a mouthful of a title. Um, Yeah, this is a little bit, we were talking just before the episode started of this is going to be almost like a little bit of a grounding episode where we've been on this loop of mm. advantages, disadvantages, and then like really last week, I think diving into the difficulty, the the limits of how far we can really take the findings of meta-analytic research mm-hmm. around treatments that are for depression. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to be a little bit of a grounding week just from a philosophical standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to launch off into some interesting dicey questions about should treatments be standardized mm-hmm. and um, how we have come to do that and, 
how we have done it and yeah all of those questions in this sort of grounding episode i think it'll be a little bit less tied i mean it's this is a uh, one piece of this article to talk about is that this is a review uh, mm-hmm. publication. This is kind of just perspective on the field, not advancing necessarily any empirical trial or uh, any kind of specific um, hypothesis testing, mm-hmm. but it's more so looking at here's a pretty uh, expansive literature review. I mean, for four pages, it's got, you know, 30 or so references so it's doing quite a bit of work in synthesizing Mm -hmm. um, what has been said but in that um, what do we see when we put all the pieces together and we sort of measure up our own uh, product from the engine that it was created Um, and that's where Berg is really saying in that title that we have given a definition of what we believe evidence-based evidence-based practices in psychology are and what they should be yet the way in which we're conducting the research, the publications that have been um, put out in the, in the recent years since that synthesis was agreed on or since that definition was agreed on, don't reflect the tripartite uh, vision mm. of evidence-based practice. Yeah. So it's sort of a check back to the field to say, what are we doing here? We yeah. talked about it as being more involved with these other domains, but we're really focusing on one. Um, and in this, Berg identifies it as the scientocentrism, as mm. the main sort of type of publication and what the field seems to value as yeah. evidence for yes. supporting. Yeah, it's, it's how everything else is funneled. Yeah. It's funneled through the science, Must fit. scientific um, mm-hmm. algorithm, if yeah. you will. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I can imagine listeners saying, oh, evidence-based practices in psychology are tripartite? Right. What? I didn't even know what that. What is that? Yeah. yeah. What does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I kind of want to start there and just sort of yeah. give the the re, the listeners um, and, and readers. viewer reading along if you accepted the invite at the beginning Subliminal. of this episode. With the on but not loud yes. megaphone. <laughs> megaphone, Yes. Um, yeah, so the listeners can get a, a sense for, because we've talked in past episodes about um, the history of evidence-based practices mm-hmm. um, stemming from the medical field and yeah. um, being judicious and, and open to the, to the particularities of the clients. And, mm-hmm. um, and we had some like pretty, like, I mean, we had some quarrels with it, but also like the heart Overall, of that was like, yeah, good totally. Yeah. Um, but Berg points out that in um, 2016, the American Psychological Association uh, defined evidence-based practices in psychology as the integration of, and these are the three parts, the best available research with clinical expertise in the context of patient characteristics, culture, and preferences. So again, those three distinct parts would be best available research, clinical expertise, and patient characteristics, culture, and preferences. Mm-hmm. Um, and the APA is, is wanting every evidence-based practice to be the integration of the three. Yes. That feels like a very important part. Yes, exactly. So maybe we can talk a little bit about, and Berg does this as well, but really what just fleshing out those three domains. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that intuitively this makes sense 
um, of why we as humans would consider these as essential domains to be included. And it will also show how powerful the omission uh, of two of the domains, which is Berg's critique, uh, would be. Mm -hmm. So in looking at the best available research, this is the scientocentric perspective that mm. through the scientific method, we are going to isolate largely through meta-analyses and systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials. So here's all these studies done mm -hmm. with high validity and reliability. And we're going to look at as many of them taken together at one time as we can on one presentation with one treatment or comparing multiple treatments. And then we're going to use that as a process of um, reduction to what is what's standing on the other side mm -hmm. after all the dust has settled what treatment yeah. and what understanding of the disorder seem to make the most sense yeah in that way i almost think that like that's in line with the felt sense that berg is even saying is i think people are like in very mm -hmm. much agreeance with like when we're talking evidence-based we're talking scientific right and it's like uh, oh best best evidence like Okay, so there's people who are doing these studies that we'll never know, mm -hmm. but they're doing these studies for us to tell us what are what's the the best way to so we aim look at the to goal. them and what they're publishing and we practice that yep. way. Practice based on the best available research. Right. right. Yep. So in that, <clears throat> Berg's critique is that our field is focused too much on that element, and that we've left out in doing so the other two. Mm -hmm. which are clinical expertise and patient characteristics, culture, uh, and uh, preferences. Yeah. So the clinical expertise is, just as it sounds, the amount of experience in the field, the amount of training that that person has um, experienced, as well as the range of disorders they've uh, treated, how they themselves are engaging in professional development, all of these components, which... Um, I agree again intuitively that we typically don't include that in our recognition of an evidence-based practice. It's yeah. like a it's a, a provider characteristic, mm -hmm. not something included in the actual determination of the practice. No, yeah, and I I love that you, um, I love that you're going there, and because he says some things that I think are really kind of sharply pointed, but mm -hmm. they're very short. Because mm -hmm. um, he's drawing on a lot of writings about even outside of the clinical field, like what makes an expert an expert? Yeah. And he says, uh, the novice is fragmentally rule bound, whereas the expert acts with more um, intuition, mm -hmm. acts more intuitively. Yes. And I think that is like an interesting part of this evidence-based practice. The Yeah, the equation that yeah. allegedly were to follow. To say just as much as we need to be grounded in what we know to be working through research inquiries, scientific research inquiries. We also have to include in best practices mm -hmm. the clinical expertise that acts intuitively and sometimes Not out rigidly. of yeah. the rules. Yes. Um, Which that, I mean, gets me so fired up. Yes. But it, on the face of it, my gut says, well, that's not what, that's not what people mean by evidence-based practice. Like they want you to follow the rules. Yeah. Like that's what my gut says. Yeah. It's like because of the way that I've been treated, the way I've heard others talk to people, it's much yeah. more about evidence-based practice means you follow the manualized treatment that was certified as evidence-based 
practice. Mm-hmm. And actually your clinical, and this is like, I mean, we talked about this in the, the, the exclusion criteria in these random control trials. Yeah. If you're deviating too much from you the standardized treatment. Excluded. You're excluded. You're, the patients are excluded and all of your clinical interactions are yeah. then excluded yeah. from the data. Yeah. So even there we have this like, if you're not forming to the... Despite the outcome of that therapy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's the crazy part. Mm-hmm. Um, let's, you know, <clears throat> just as an example, in a randomized controlled trial of a treatment that is supposed to be um, evidence-based for depression, if they had 10 different therapists practice that way, they would look at the internal consistency of how the manualized treatment was applied. If it's determined that one of those therapists is adding in more than is tolerable to the statistic that was agreed on by the researchers uh, to the manual and kind of going off book, just as you said, those cases would be excluded from the sample. Yeah, which like that's an implicit connotation. Like you're not within the evidence-based. You're not doing it right. Therapy. Yeah. And then what if that clinician saw wonderful results with their clients? Mm-hmm. We don't know. And don't that's part of the last yeah, yeah. episode. Those results were excluded. There was publication bias because when a clinician went off the script, that was then thrown out. Yeah. 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 I, I love that. And he even um, quotes Heidegger, who is yes. an existential philosopher and talks about how experts have deep and often tacit knowledge that include rich situation on situational and contextual experience and mm-hmm. awareness. And I think of like in our model and a lot of therapeutic modalities are increasingly becoming aware of the wisdom of not only the client's body, but the therapist's body in mm-hmm. practices and saying like, let's like, you can't ask the client to include their body in therapy without you including yours because then the bodies have nothing to communicate to and we'll miss it. And I love that there's like this, I was was talking to um, a client about this and I don't know, like I would be willing to express this, but not maybe not willing to die on this hill. But I think in my gut, it feels right that Mm. the human brain is like, it makes leaps and bounds intuitively. Yes. That like computers and rigid forms just are unable to do because of our spontaneity spontaneity yeah or creative associative capacity yes yeah and yeah and the ability for our brain to just like link like what feel absurd <laughs> yeah together and then it makes sense and what emerges is some sort of healing experience yeah um that that to me is just like like don't and i think this is in line with what Berg is saying is if the APA is going to say that clinical expertise is part of evidence-based practices, hmm. then we can't be limiting the the EBTs or EBPs to just basically computer-given modalities. Mm-hmm. Like we don't want our clinical experts to become or computers. Machines or yeah. 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 Because you will miss out on like the spontaneous moments of healing that only the human mammalian o- organism can engaging in that moment yeah which if you and again this is spinning up into lots of different organizational psychology sort of 
perspectives on the formation of the field of psychotherapy, but you know, the industrial revolution revealed to us the power of systemization within production and expectation of quality of output. So we learned in that process that if we can systematize it and put it into a procedure that can be replicated mm. with the same material, we can turn this into a production line and mm -hmm. get expected results from each step. Yeah. That influenced our thinking. You know, I'm thinking of McGilchrist's work here like that. Mm -hmm. That influenced, oh, speaking of, it's right there. Yeah. <laughs> the matter of things. But that shaped our conceptualization of even the scientific method yeah and so the implications of that i think are showing themselves in this over favoring of this production means mm -hmm. the scientific you know the scientocentric perspective yeah yeah and i think we've we've learned some limits and so many in in through difficulty yeah and through failure and like oh why isn't this working yeah which is a thing I want to come back to, like I'm going to pin that in my own head and yeah. even say it out loud because I want to come back to if we really include all three parts, what emerges in the clinical like experience. I'm um, very excited. Yes. Uh, but yeah, quotes a lot of Heidegger, which is amazing. Yes. Um, the next, the other uh, blind spot, yeah. if you will, that yeah. Berg talks about um is the patient characteristics, culture, and preferences. Mm -hmm. I got incredibly jacked on some of the like small phrases again that oh, he yeah. says um, that just I was like, okay, we need to we need to spin up on this. Yes. Um, do you mind if I just oh, I, I jump into I'm it? I'm right there with you. Um, one of the things he says is. Um, you know, because he's talking about how important it is that the values, beliefs, worldviews, goals, and preferences of the patient are um, just, it, it cannot be overstated that those need to be included in therapy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that was coming to my mind is like kind of that idea of all we can do is invite. And in that invitation, that's where collaboration begins. Mm -hmm. If I'm trying to force a client to change or to alter like an experience, in their in their brain and in their body i will create a strategy mm -hmm. i will create the necessity for a strategy in their nervous system which then doesn't lead to healing that's just another disintegration of the system yes and he he says in other words and he j had just come off of talking uh quoting the apa mm -hmm. about general principles of the rights of individuals to have have self-determination he says in other words the inclusion of, inclusion of patient preferences is an end in itself and not merely a means to other ends. I mean, that's scathing. That is scathing. Yeah. And I like, I think we should like just take some time to just like sit, sit that. with that. Yeah. Um, and even like how uncomfortable that is when it's held in tension with what we think about when we think of evidence based therapy an effective therapy mm -hmm. because I think even that to me those two were somewhat like synonymous mm. EBT is an effective therapy mm -hmm. um, but if I'm if patient preference is an end in and of itself and not a means to an end I'm fundamentally like tethered to the limitations of their 
subjective limits yes in and their desires yep. as well yeah that and it goes on to say that patient preferences ought to play a significant role in clinical practice even when the patient prefers something that diverges from what science indicates would be or even de facto is effective and efficient mm. the individual patient's preference are not determined by scientific findings yeah i mean that that um i want to i'm feeling the need to go back to the three pieces there okay because we we have quite the spectrum now of tension mm. between what he just named which is patient preferences culture uh or patient characteristics culture and preferences mm. and on the other side of the spectrum is most agreed upon scientific findings what in that he said to me is like but the result of what emerges as you mentioned kind of doesn't really care about any distinct part in theory yeah it doesn't care about either end of the spectrum or the middle it says we're looking at something that emerges from this dialectic tension Mm -hmm. what does it look like when you put a patient into a microscope and look at then the tension between yeah i think it's to, yeah, it feels very much like the difference between the the ideal or the imaginary and the real. Mm-hmm. Like ideally, therapy could be done with C- CBT to treat depression in eight to ten weeks, on average, given the statistics we are presented with on who went through the clinical study and was mm-hmm. included. That's an ideal. That's an imaginary. Like, yeah, I don't know those people. Right. I don't know the situations. I don't know the patient characteristics, culture preferences, or the expert experience in that room. Mm-hmm. I know none of that. Right. I know the ideal of it. Which so then, I'm so curious to hear, you can continue, but just to hear what influences the word ideal mm. by why do we want that? Mm. I think the use of the word ideal feels like the way we're like implicitly and unconsciously told to relate to mm-hmm. research findings yeah as the ideal is it efficient yeah and and that like probably has a lot of deeper unconscious connections to what i wanted to talk about which yes. is like we've been talking um just the other day about the it has to work experience mm-hmm. and i think a lot of times that oh, is man. yeah what our relationship as clinicians is to the quote-unquote evidence-based field mm-hmm. of like this modality has to work yes and on the other side of that is just like tons of shame when it doesn't yeah and i think that to me is the ideal like we're i'm i'm trying to squeeze reality into this Im- this preconceived image of the way it should be mm-hmm. and when it's not being the way it should be I collapse into it has to be. Yes, I love that. And that creates connection. this pressure of like as clinicians we're like why is this not ideal? Right. Why is this it not has to be? Yeah, it has to be. And man, you get burnout, you get yeah. shame, you get disinterest in therapy like yeah. that can be such a pressurized experience. Not to mention likely rejection or guilt and shame from other colleagues. Oh my god, yes. Like professionally, you're just yeah. like, oh. I don't want to tell you how my therapy practice is going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we're operating on the ground of it has to work, right? 
like in this way. Am I seeing results? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I want to have those conversations. I don't want to talk with you eight weeks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, no, like yeah. two months of treatment. Um, yeah, we can see symptom reduction, but I don't really want to like yeah. base the outcome of the therapy on that mark. Right. And then the opposite being the the real. Yeah. The you know, the multitude of complexities that are emerging in every therapeutic encounter. Yes. And the amount of like state dependent processes we're working with. Um, All revealing how intimately blurred the past and the present actually are. Yeah. Yes. Every interaction reveals entire years of experience. Yeah. In a single moment. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, I just, I think like that's where to me the melody is. Hmm. It's in the tension of the two. Yeah. Like if I, because I could be, I could be utterly like, and that's that's yeah, actually that's like McGill Chris hardcore uh, yeah, <laughs> metaphor of like that's what makes music is the tension between not two any independent opposing, note. Yeah. yeah, um, and like the tension between the real and the ideal. Yeah, and like because again, and we're we're proponents of like the research, the science. Absolutely. Like, let us dive into the mechanisms of change and, and wrestle understand with it, it more deeply. Than yes, like every day. Yeah. I was listening to another podcast. Um, what? How dare you? I know. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like I'm a podcaster who listens yeah. to podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, it's a psychoanalyst podcast called Why Theory. And mm. um, they were talking about Freud. And they were actually talking about how some of the arguments against Freud like, are actually too dull. They need to be sharpened. Oh, yeah. And I feel that way sometimes with like research and science is like, yeah, we actually need to like believe in science more. Yeah. To beef it up, to make it sharper. Yes. Then it will actually start to reveal some things, but not try to use this very dull <laughs> sword. Yeah. And like try to cut down a tree with a dull axe. Yeah. We need to sharpen science. And at the same time, like realize that there's an element of that that is abstracted, ideal, imaginary. Mm-hmm. And that when I'm in the clinical encounter, this is this is the moment. This is the real. This is where all time space comes to be yeah. for the two of us. Yeah. Um, and that is that just can't be squeezed into the ideal of these the, studies. The part that makes me mad about us let, let's just use the language of the article of the, the scientist centric perspective is that research that is published simply to validate a manualized approach in excluding some of these other uh, clinical approaches that may be a little bit more free-flowing and perhaps very free-flowing, almost entirely responsive to the relationship between the client and the therapist, um, we then are limited in the raw material we draw on as researchers to know what empirical inquiry is possible, what has been done, what is able to be done next, um, because we excluded these other more just organic and emergent uh, ways of knowing, we then as the next generation of researchers are 
in my perspective, completely hamstrung. Yeah. Limited. Yes. By generations that came before us. Mm-hmm. We're not seeing the full picture. Therefore, when we go when we go to try and create, I mean, the image in my head is like somebody said they're going to let us paint with every color imaginable, and they only showed us three. Mm-hmm. And so we said, "Oh, okay, yeah, these are the only three colors." Yeah. Okay. So I guess I'll make something with three colors. Mm-hmm. It's the most vivid, and then like you see something walking by that's in one of those colors that's not of the three, and you're like, "What the? F-? Yeah, <laughs> you told me." That how yeah, it's it's emergent yes. from the complex interplay of the other colors exactly yeah, in, and I mean I think we could talk about this kind of, and I hope you don't mind me no. going here, but I, we could talk about this in like an abstract complex way, but my mind goes to like what we were I mean you really were doing with the most recent research um, re- regarding shame oh, attachment yeah. in the pandemic yeah yeah. And I think as we talked and looked at that data several times, you we could have at many points cut our play short. Yeah. Because the data was a little confusing. Very strange. And doing some things that we did not expect. Mm-hmm. And I think like that to me, for the sake of like publication specificity, mm-hmm. is where some of these random control trials, like they're limiting play. Exactly. And, and focusing oh. too sharply. Whereas Out of fear. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't wanna we don't wanna mess up the data. We don't wanna rather than running with that part for just a little longer and saying, can we actually take these these um malfunctions in the data? Yeah. These uh, irregularities. Or, yeah, the dis eases yes. in the in <laughs> the data and see if they actually make sense in some Somehow. Way. Yeah. Yes. And and I think that's like when you sat with that data longer, yeah. when you played with it more in SPSS, yeah. like real beautiful experiences emerged. Power. But in, in some of our scientocentric models of how analysis should be performed, that play is not as present. No, it's not if as at all. Allowed. Yeah, we, and this is such, a, I'm so glad you brought that up. I hadn't even thought of that. The, prevailing theory in attachment literature is that secure or perish in many ways. Mm. Very recently uh, have we started to see serious publication come out, not just in books that are self-published or even published by really notable um, uh, publication uh, companies. Call back to Crittenden. Yeah, but seriously, but um, coming out in journals now in common thought that a dimensional perspective, even of quote unquote insecure styles, is essential, yeah. especially in times of stress. Mm-hmm. Because what the pandemic revealed in our literature or in our uh, research is that those who were avoidantly attached actually outperformed those who were securely attached and in- insecure, anxious attached. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That shouldn't happen. Yeah. No literature. Like you can't, there's no explanation for that. Mm-hmm. There was like two articles that were talking about the avoidant resilience in problem focused coping, but that's it. Yeah. Nobody making any more statements about why they thought that was, um, what was happening with these people. And we have a massive sample that shows this pattern. Yeah. Which I like, like if you would ask, 
clinicians. Like that might like, oh, so yeah, this is this is clinical expertise. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Like they would be like, Well, yeah, I like that's actually working for them in some way. Yeah. And it's like, buffering them almost yeah. entirely from yeah. the effects of the pandemic yeah. on depression. Like mm-hmm. sure and it is. Totally. Yeah. And, and like, yeah, of course, like that strategy is going to be more preferred. Like yeah. I see that in my clients. Like, yeah, dismissives, you're doing better because the world was literally like colluding with your strategy in its response to the pandemic. And exploiting the insecurities of the anxious times. Mm. Yeah. And I think also like clients would know this. Like, yeah. You can't tell me that in my dysregulated environment, I'm supposed to be secure. Right. Like, do not tell me Don't that. Tell me yeah, that. Yeah. it's not possible. Yeah, not we good have for to me. create yeah. safety and security and connection yep. before we can find some like deep neural architectural shifts towards yes towards integration, integration yeah. and security. And so this is like the perfect example of how if we're just if we're just funneling uh, clinical expertise and client preferences and culture and experiences into the science so scientocentric model of ebts they get funneled out yeah they get um spliced away or combined in ways that that leave stuff behind Mm -hmm. but if they have a linked and differentiated relationship to one another so if clinical experience and client preferences actually like this and this is client characteristics and preferences yeah. yeah yeah they sharpen science. Yes. They actually make science better. Yes. Because they say, like, actually, that isn't totally true. Yes. Not to us. Yes. Not to my lived experience as a client, and not to my lived experience right. as a clinician. You're applying a theory to me and not letting my individual characteristics come through and show you that actually that's not the case. Yeah. If we were, I mean, we like when we when I was conducting some of the first preliminary analyses of this data set. It didn't make any sense because I, my theory was still, um, yeah, my theory was still somewhat bound by what was discoverable in the databases, which again, like I at said. At a broad level. Yes. At, yeah. Again, at a broad level, it is so prevalent that it's a secure parish in so many ways. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the, those who are insecurely attached have higher ACE scores on average. They are more likely to experience chronic health issues. They're more mm-hmm. likely to experience divorce. They're more like, like all of these predictive outcomes that have been uh, sort of the result of decades of publications at this mm-hmm. point. But yeah. the data didn't make sense to me. So either the data set was bad, like this is, there are robots in here like giving responses, <laughs> like which is a problem with survey data, but some of the other variables were consistent, mm. showing that the data was good. Mm-hmm. So then we had to go back to the drawing board and say, I think something's going on with these avoidantly attached individuals. And the more that we dug with that theory, the more that we found that that was actually true. Yeah. And especially uh, those very high in attachment avoidance. Um, yeah. They had the lowest depression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think like when we get down to the ground of what we're really saying, it is if you are practicing you i'm going to say kind of provocative like you are not practicing an evidence-based therapy if you are not trusting your own clinical intuition as well as the as well as 
the client characteristics integrating the client characteristics culture and preferences into therapy yes you're not you are you're outside of that's an it, EBT. yeah and that's what that's what berg is saying yeah yes. yes and and i think like the the pendulum could swing to like well let's let's get away from science then right and that becomes the blind spot again that's not unicentric as Berg yes. says like then we're just going to another way yeah yeah this has to be and he even talks about how um the canadian psychological association has a Oh, one that is seeking more of like a uniform mm -hmm. dynamic mm -hmm. and in his opinion that is still going to lead to same problem the same problem but the apa consciously or i would, I would suppose unconsciously, unconsciously yeah, that's right. propose this tripartite tension. definition yeah yeah and tension between yeah. the three because that is the tension makes the melody yes that the the, the seemingly contradictory truths make a deep truth and that is like the truth of ebt yes exactly holding these intentions yeah i love that we have this episode to kind of look back to as having gone through a few articles at this point on procedures of evidence-based psychotherapy definitions procedure of um, creating the definition um, that here we're really looking at all when it comes, you know, when it comes down to it, the research findings are a pillar, mm. very important. It's going to tell you what so many researchers have been working to clarify for so long, but that is only one pillar. And if you choose it, you are wrong. <laughs> yeah. Practitioner experience. Again, amazing wisdom to be found in guru therapists or mm -hmm. uh, master therapists. Yeah, uh, who, experts. Experts, yeah, who are doing this work and getting consistent results and practicing in a variety of, of disciplines and wisdom traditions. Mm -hmm. Again, amazing. If you choose that alone, you are wrong. Going all the way to patient characteristics and culture and preferences, if we just go with a humanistic, yes, just you right here, yeah. Again, tell me where we're going. Tell me where we're going. This is up to you. This is your journey. We're yeah. all just reflecting back to the client what they heard, what they said. Again, we're wrong. Yeah. Wrong and that it will just lead to further disintegration in some direction. That's right. Yeah. Maybe effective. Again, any number of these may be effective with some individuals. Mm -hmm. Some people do really just need a space to sit and be heard. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Some people do just need the confidence of the academic community that says, nope, I know this is actually going to work because here's the research on it. Yeah. And we talked about this in our previous episode that if we know the research on the work that we're doing, it's important that we inform the client that they're mm -hmm. aware of what base we're drawing on to justify the choice of our treatment approach. Yeah. Some people will be very encouraged by that. And others will be encouraged by how long you've been in practice, yeah. how much you've seen people like me, quote unquote, mm -hmm. and worked with it. Do people actually get better from this? Mm -hmm. Yes, they will find hope and resilience. Yeah. But true evidence-based practice in psychotherapy is based on the three taken together. Yeah. In that way, and we didn't set out for this to be like a sort of kind of advertisement, but like that is why we are so passionate about case conceptualization 
Absolutely. which is can be such a overlooked dynamic of yeah. the therapeutic encounter. Yeah. Oh. He he says in the ending, the conclusion of this mm. article, that synthesis is under investigated yeah. in the field of psychotherapy. Yeah. Which that's really where we need to be going. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like this cultural one of the things we talk about in SAP so much is like this cultural moment has so much beneficial information mm. into the why and how that is behind people getting better. Yes. And yet we still continue to to eagerly seek and wish for a what. What? What do we do? What do we do? It's it's like, yes, okay. Like I we get that. Yeah. But if we can shift into why and how, we will do yes. what organically. Is, it yeah. will emerge. It has yeah. to. It has to. We never yeah. stop yes. doing. Yes. And we never stop having emergent experiences. Yes. The way to the what is through the how and the why. Yeah. It yes. cannot be arrived to on its own. Yeah. In pursuing it alone. Yeah. And the synthesis of what am I experiencing as the as a clinician, an expert in my field, yes. what am what is the patient experiencing in their community, their culture, their preferences, their construct of the world? Where are they at? Mm-hmm. And then where is the field at? Yeah. In what are they kind saying? Of saying yeah. how to move forward, and then how do we collaborate all of those? Yeah, that matters. Notice I'm saying how, yes, not, not this is what you do. Yes. How do we collaborate all of those? And the just the doing is to collaboratively <laughs> discover that yeah yeah um, there is no single like yeah aim for the belief aim mm-hmm. for the the pressure release in the body aim for the it's how it's all about how yeah i'm reflecting on one of the last times i sat through um <laughs> trying not to be as like jaded but um the last time i sat through a conversation uh, or presentation on the importance of evidence-based practice. Um, it is so oriented around a reaction to fear. Mm. Um, in some way or another, if we don't do evidence-based practice, we're not going to be able to be reimbursed for insurance. If we don't do evidence-based practice, you're unethically practicing psychotherapy because it's our duty to fill in the blank. If you don't do evidence-based practice, how do you know that you're going to be effective as a counselor? Like all three of these points are fear-based. Yeah. Not hope-based, not wellness-focused, not on, well, there's no curiosity in it at all. It's actually activating. Yeah. It is a exhortation to the field based in fear. Yeah. Which is like, if I was with a client and I noticed that they are doing good things out of fear, I would have some concern. I would have some concern. You're working out, but the driver is fear. Yes. You're eating healthy, but the driver is fear. Yes. You're engaging in social situations, but the driver is fear. My nervous system is going to say there's a lack of complexity. And we should talk about that. In your primary processes yes. that we need to start like tuning yes. differently and finding because why. Because in choosing that, we're omitting Mm-hmm. And dissociating from yes. so much. Yeah. we There's so much disformulation. Yes. And 
that's like our posture feels very like open to all of the affective experiences. Particularly Whereas, those that are not <laughs> being currently chosen. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Part- yeah. Particularly not fear. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We've got enough of that. Yeah, it's endemic. <laughs> and, and I will attune to it and I have felt it and I know it. Yes. Um, and maybe we should nuance it and complexify it and integrate it yeah. with the other parts of us as a field. Um, because a field can't keep doing good things out of fear. Yeah. It will lead to disintegration in some way. Exactly. And that's where I think the, you know, the research we're doing with the uh, attachment avoidance, shame, and mental wellness in the pandemic, you know, that is something I think that is just going to be really important for me forever Mm -hmm. of watching these individuals outperform everything that, Every other category on every measure, (laughs) Mm. except for when shame proneness is included. Mm. That was the moderating effect. Yeah. Those high in shame proneness completely lost their resilience to depression. Mm. Yeah. And that illuminating, that process of of doing that research and even coming to the novelty of that finding Mm -hmm. is, okay, this is more complex than... yes. The simple, well, we need to get symptom reduction of this strategy. Like, yeah. we need to get the diagnosis out of here. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, the strategies underneath the diagnosis might be insulating someone from a severe they global are there crisis. For a reason. Yeah. Yes, and that's yeah. It's just such a bigger picture to me than how narrowly focused we sometimes get yeah. or find ourselves. Um, I'm curious in this moment what you're making of the way we're talking for the field. Like, if we were to teach a research methods class together, which, God, I hope we get to one day. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> um, we kind of did in grad school, but it was like, we, did we didn't get paid. In grad school. We didn't get paid for it. <laughs> we did. Don't you remember, like, yes. a little bit? Of, oh, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it was like $100 or something. Oh, we got. We oh, actually did get paid. Nice. Okay. You did. I think. Uh, yeah. I was. I was in severe stress. Yeah. At, at no, that that's point. true. Speaking of dismissive attachment, avoidance. That's my strategy. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, when but, we teach, when we do teach, because I'll yeah. claim it. Yeah. Yeah. You'll manifest it. I mean, what? What would your opening remarks be to the class? <laughs> I. Yeah. I think it would be something about what what we are doing in scientific inquiry is infinitely important and limited. It has a limit. Yeah. Um, it's not a silver bullet. It can't be. It will never be. Yes. But it is still infinitely important to do. Mm-hmm. And so when there is the moment of like, ugh, or ah, this doesn't make sense, or... I'm struggling. It's like, well, yeah, there's, that's a part of the process. One, let's sharpen that. And two, let's realize at some point we're going to hit where we need to go outside of science to maybe find the answer Yeah. to then come back into science and discover it. Yeah. Which that's, I mean, I think one of my efforts in the class would be to broaden our conceptualization of what science is, Mm. because I don't think we're leaving anything. I think we're actually discovering integrating what is linking and differentiating exactly yeah um 
In yeah, because I, oh, sorry, I was going to say, I, I tell my clients all the time, like, I want you to live scientifically. Yeah. I want you to go out there into the world and live experimentally. Yeah. Try it on. Try it on. And you have a lighthouse that yeah. you can always come back to. And we and can put the new strategies away if we want to go yeah. back to the old 100%. Yeah. We can even talk about how you talk about it with other people and say, like, I don't know what the hell I was doing last week. Yeah. I was just trying something on. Yeah. Let's, like, contextualize that as, like, that was... That was crazy. I know why and <laughs> yeah. when I did that. And uh, I'm going to contextualize it. And we're going to live experimentally again. In the and now. Keep, in, in the, the now. Room. And yeah. keep being open and curious. Yeah. Like. That feels very scientific. Yes, exactly. I wish that we taught our children how to do that better. Mm. I wish we were taught how to do that. Children, I'm, I'm like doing like a whisper, like a uh, gesture with my hand, but children are going to do that. Yes. Children live experimentally all the time. Yeah. And it's as if we take it away from them. Mm. Yeah. But as you were talking about your opening remarks, I think my, as often we do with each other, which is fun, like... One of us will talk and then the other will add a very nice just like bow around. Mm. It's as if this. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nice dance. But we will never know nor be able to articulate what is going on. But it's vitally important that we try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to try. Yeah. And it's okay that we miss it. Oh, we're going to. Yeah. I just said. Yeah. <laughs> it's impossible. It's impossible. So the point then is not to accomplish it, yeah. but to try. Trying is the point. Yeah. Exercising that play. Yeah. Yeah. I went to, for, for some listeners who are also in this cultural moment who have seen um, everything everywhere all at once, which nice. is an A24 movie. Um it's like the last scene of the movie they yeah. say the quote um one of the characters asks what do we do mm. what do we do now with all of this information that we just discovered in the movie what do we do and the other person says we can do whatever we want because it doesn't matter and i think that like tension of mm. we'll never be able to fully articulate or know what's happening but it's incredibly important it's essential essential that we try is like that just brought tears to my eyes like yeah just i mean it's the same like it more deeply dialectical tension that creates the beauty and the melody of life yes like it does not matter what we do and just by saying that it infinitely matters what i do next that's right oh because yeah it could be absurd but it also is that's right and that matters so therefore it matters yeah and then we will never be able to know. Right. And it's infinitely important that we try. Yes. Closing remarks of when we put together the three pillars of what the APA recognizes as evidence-based practices in psychology. We have what is currently being published in the research in synthesis what is clinical expertise and clinician characteristics influencing the situation, and in that, how do patient characteristics, culture, and preferences influence the model? So what do you think as we overlap all three, Hmm. what emerges? 
I think my, the most important thing to me, I go to like the clinical experience of therapists trying to do evidence-based treatments mm. and just encouraging them and listeners and anyone that there are a million reasons why the scientific EBT doesn't work mm -hmm. and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like stay curious. Yes. We don't know everything. And the answer may be within the patient or within you. It, and it, the EBTs of science do not have to work. Mm. That would be like my like and closing remark. They do not have to work. Yes. And I hope that I can imagine people listening. Like I, I hope that in hearing that there is, because I fundamentally agree with that. I know that that can create terror mm. because again, like one way of interacting with that quote at the end of everything, everywhere, all at once of what do we do? Whatever we want, because it doesn't matter that can be heard as completely fatalistic. Yeah. It, yeah. The temptation is to become depersonalized. Yeah, so there's no meaning. And so into absurdity. die. Yeah. Or go insane. Yeah. That's one, I mean, totally valid choice. Yeah. In the face of what we're actually dealing with. Yeah. Totally. There's also the choice of completely spellbound rule following. That is a choice. What do we do? Anything we want. Okay, well, I'm going to try and perfect it. What's the one thing? Let me get the right thing. Yeah. That's a choice also. Yeah. But there is this middle way of saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't actually matter. Yeah. But with our clients who are so filled with pain and fear and shame to sit with and know that you are so supported in the simple fact that you are human yeah. with that person. You know more than any book is ever going to tell you yeah. about that moment. That it does not really matter yeah. what you do. Yeah. It doesn't really matter. Yes. To me, that's like, the and I've been re reading, it's literally on a chair next to us, The Matter with Things by Amy Goldcrest, which is his newest work. Um, that to me is where like I go back to the, conversation we were having earlier about the real and the imaginary mm -hmm. and we've even associated meaning like unconsciously it's funny that we say meaning matters yeah. and that if something matters it has meaning. meaning yeah what what is all of creation made of matter matter so by me, definition yes by yeah. definition like it all matters yeah and it, it's a it's really a question of what matters yeah like the the ideal ebt does not matter in the room what matters is your experience of that that's being brought into the room with the client tethered to your clinical experience across time yeah that matters yes and the ideal of what has been talked about that mattered in a clinical study that will have its limits yes and we have these protocols and these theories and these clinical applications like we have those because they mattered at one time 
that's and what awesome. we're doing now came from yes. that experience. Yeah, it's yeah. a scaffold of matter. Yes. <laughs> and and that means something. And at the same time, matter is always developing. Mm-hmm. And what matters is you, me, in this space right now. Yes. And what comes up. Yes. There are ways of knowing all along that spectrum. And again, vitally important that we try mm-hmm. to understand and articulate and be more precise with our language. Mm-hmm. You know, the discussion section of this paper that I'm working on is longer than the study section itself because mm. this is profound. Like, we need to understand this. Um, what does this actually show us? It shows us that we didn't know. Mm. It shows us that we were we were missing yeah. something because the environment wasn't creating the right situation Wait, to too, watch. Too many presuppositions. Yes, to watch this strategy shine. Mm. And in this situation, it, it's there, the perfect storm. And there it was. I mean, if you think about the pandemic as a externalized interjection of their home environment, mm. you're watching them literally in their environment yeah. thrive. Yeah. I'm unaffected. Strategy works. Everything's chaos. I'm here. Yeah. I'm at the affect. I'm good. Distort the cognition. I know what I'm doing. Zoom's a thing. Yeah. I got my job. I'm going to stay employed. I'm going to, I have my family. We're here. Doors are closed. Stay at home orders in place. I've got home chef delivered. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, like yeah. All of these, all of this resourcefulness emerges. That makes it seem as if nothing actually happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that influences our clinical encounter. Absolutely. That matters. And also, I might experience something that matters more. Yeah. Or the, yeah, and that's in the okay. face of that finding. Yeah. Like, I've got an avoidant attached person in my office that seems to be pretty upset. Like, <laughs> yeah. What's going yeah. on? Like, Their experience is different. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They're unique. And hopefully you'll look at shame proneness because I did find that that. <laughs> yeah. If they're filled with shame, mm. they lose their resilience. Yeah. Yeah. It does not have to work. Yeah. It's an infinitely complex system. Human beings. Yeah. Our ways of knowing must try to match that. Mm-hmm. Complex, open. Emergent. Yep. And I think in all of that, like, we're talking in a clinical um, therapist meeting last week of just like the absurdity that if we as therapists think that we can bear the weight of thousands of years of trauma and disintegration (laughs) in our one hour to two hour sessions with our clients a week. (laughs) That is absurd. Absurd. There are severe limits to what we can do. There are amazing moments of healing and integration and change that we don't make any sense. Would never be possible. Yeah. That don't make sense if we consider time. Right. Like my one hour is going to change someone's life when they've been living this way for their whole life yeah (laughs) like that makes no sense to me and at the same time like we can't bear all the weight exactly and so it's okay if it's more complex than what is scientifically discovered in the most accessible modern research yes still integrate the modern research and be open to what else is emerging yes So the next episode, we're going into 
should evidence-based therapy be standardized? Come along with us. Should it be? Should it? I don't know. Think through it. <laughs> You're already state prime. Learn to think. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Given what we've talked about today, but. You're already state prime for sure. Yeah. For sure. And yeah. you know where we're at. Yeah. That's why we want you to read too. Maybe you'll get something different. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and email us and communicate with That's us right. and have a maybe Zoom meeting with maybe us. Maybe we'll talk oh. about it. Now we're talking. That's what I'm saying. We've been open to it. We've maybe done we'll it before. Do some type of like forum. I don't know. Oh. That'd be cool. That'd be so sick. Yeah. A live event. I'm in. Evidence-based therapists. Reaching out. We'll all agree on an article. We talk. Read it together. With you. With you. So you don't have to talk alone. <laughs> in your to car. yourself. <laughs> so you don't have to talk to yourself. <laughs> or to us, like, on your car, like, yeah. speakers. We need to get better at those subtitles. because they're, they're a little lengthy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we read so you don't have to was, like, good. And then we always and then we want said, to add. Par- parenthetical. We, want we haven't even file. bracketed anything. Yeah, we haven't within bracketed. The yeah, yeah. We could get into subtitle, like inception. Yeah. And footnotes. Well, yeah. I don't know and if anyone's notes. ever footnoted a title before or a subtitle, but. You see journals do it. They'll, okay. But they'll yeah. give like, they use it, I think, cheaply. They use it for like where the uh, data set can be found or something. Oh, like uh, yeah. But I think no, that I opens a precedent <laughs> for a half page footnote. Yes. <laughs> The half page was was generous on the on the low end. <laughs> I was thinking a couple page long preface of <laughs> that's how we're how we're inviting you in the ways that's that feel in the most supportive. Like <laughs> it really is. <laughs> yeah. Here's a point, and then I've got to say what I meant. <laughs> and then the, the editor wouldn't let me put it in the full book, but you bet I'm gonna put a footnote that's <laughs> three pages long. <laughs> Still get it in there. Still get it in there. Yeah. And I made it a thousand pages long. Yes. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah. Who cares? Anyway, enjoy your day. Yes. I uh, hope you're well. It's sunny here. I hope it's sunny there unless you like the rain. And then Go I hope it. you enjoy that too. 100%. High five. See you next week. Take care. We hope that you've enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you stay curious and create community around discussing the research that matters most to clinicians and researchers. If you're curious to learn more about something you heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming case conceptualization trainings and community events. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes. Leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching the Evidence-Based Therapist Podcast. This podcast is a project of Beyond Healing Media, a media creation group committed to creativity, community, and embracing the beauty of being human. If you like this podcast, you might also like the other podcasts of Beyond Healing Media. Notice That is an EMDR podcast hosted by Emdria-approved consultants and trainers who use EMDR in their practice. Beyond Trauma is an educational podcast on the journey of trauma therapy and what it means to be humans who have been hurt but are learning to recover and grow, living the life we all want of safety and connection. The Burnout Educator is an interview-style podcast that invites stories from people across the spectrum of the educational system and seeks to see the human inside the role they play. It is our desire that you see parts of your story and those around you in the stories you hear. Hey, welcome back to another week 
of evidence-based therapist where it's we me. read oh yeah oh sorry, oh, sorry. Oh, dang it cut we'll cut it start. <laughs> start again. hey you, okay oh, yeah yeah you're no, gonna you go ahead. Okay. you're starting 